You are listening to the Marketing Rescue Podcast, the weekly show where we take a look at some epic marketing failures, along with some pretty amazing brand rescues and comebacks. And now your hosts, Nico and Chad. Hey, Chad. Yeah. What is the oldest opioid, Mr. Pharma Man? Oh, oldest opioid. Jeez. Uh, I mean, I don't know. I mean, it comes from opioids come from poppy plants, right? So, yep. uh, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good question. You well, stumped me, as usual. Yeah, I know. Well, there goes the whole <laughs> pharma expert reputations at the door. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You can throw that out right now. <laughs> <laughs> well, there are archaeological evidence that indicates that medical plants were used dating back as far as the Paleolithic ages. Do you know when that was? Well, I know this was one of the more recent periods and when much of human evolution took place, but it's been too long since college biology to remember the dates. So uh, I, I don't remember. 60th millennium BC, a very long time ago. Nice. But the actual evidence shows that 3400 BC and Mesopotamia or Southwest Asia, as we know today, opium were manufactured from the poppy seeds. So you're 100% right. Oh, wow. It's a long time ago, right? Yeah, so it's clearly been around a while. Yeah. This is nothing new. And it's still being used today, <laughs> illegally and legally, unfortunately. Yes, quite a bit. Which we'll talk a little bit more in today's show. But before we do, I know we're going to start doing reviews in the end of the show, not to interfere with our flow of our story, but there's one review that you said you wanted to read. Yes, and that is because it has something to do with what we're talking about today. So we actually got a review from Deshaun Kremen in Canada, and he said, Great job, guys. I'm hooked. Do you have an episode planned for Purdue Pharma and how they basically created the U.S. opioid epidemic through deceitful marketing tactics to patients and doctors? (laughs) This has been a difficult episode for us both because... As some of you might know, because he's done a little bit of research on marketingrescuepodcast.com, Chad and I founded and run a digital marketing agency. And I don't know, 80% of our revenue is within the pharma space. So we know it really well. And I was following this whole story as it was developing with the deposition with Purdue. And it's just such a bad story. It's not even a failure. It is just evil. <laughs> <laughs> it's unbelievable. Like... Literally, as I was researching this, I was getting emotional and it's very difficult to fight back the tears when you see the impact that this story has had on so many people at such a personal level, so widespread. Yeah. And pharma, as we know it today, or the marketing of pharma, especially in the US, tend to have a really bad reputation attached to it. And both of you and I and the people that work for us got into the industry because we got sick of marketing toilet paper to people (laughs) and we wanted to do something good. And that's why we started our agency. So stories like we're going to unpack today kind of like taints that whole perception. But I think it's still a good story for people to be aware of just to understand like how big organizations can do really bad things in, in plain sight of everybody. Yeah, maybe one of these days we can actually record in person again together. That might be fun. What are we at? Week eight of our California lockdown. It's getting it's getting real, man. I think week twelve. <laughs> oh. it's, it's been a long time. So things are things are starting to level out. I think some counties are starting to open back up. 
we both have little children, so we're a little bit overcautious, but we'll see how things happen. We've kind of like mastered this whole remote recording thing, which has been very different, but it, luckily we've got technology playing in our favor here. Absolutely. All right. So that being said, let's get started with today. So obviously we're talking about Badoo, and this is a story of a really big pharmaceutical company that basically turned neighborhood drug dealer. And I know those are harsh words, but it's really the truth. And as we explain today, I think you'll agree with us when we get to the end of today's episode. It's one of the most shocking and evil stories in the history of marketing that I have found. No doubt. And along with other stories, like I think of like EpiPen or the Pharma Bro, Martin Screlly. Yeah. Things like that have given the pharma marketing a black eye in recent years yeah which is what i alluded to when we got started right so purdue pharma was founded in 1892 by a group of medical doctors john purdue gray and george frederick bingham in manhattan as purdue frederick company from very very early days they were very focused on sales and growth of the organization they were actually one of the first group that convinced medical journals to start printing ads about medicine. So if you look them up, you'll see some of the original ads that they pioneered to put things in front of doctors and also in front of patients. And opiates have been in use for centuries, both, like we said, illegally and also legally. By the 1970s, as a result of the war on drugs, especially here in the U.S., Global supplies of natural opiates from the poppy seeds or the poppy plants had dwindled and pharmaceutical companies were looking for ways to synthesize opiates to treat pain. These synthetically derived opiates are called opioids. I know that's like a little bit of a tongue twister. And the pharmaceutical industry have been working for decades to reduce the addiction of these things because they are ridiculously addictive and constrain the ability to prescribe opiates and opioids. Yeah, and this is something that in general, the pharmaceutical industry had been really trying to make headway with. There were a lot of over-the-counter products that were actually pulled back to prescription-only, or prescription-only versions of them were made, like, for example, cough syrups with codeine or morphine. So, you know, the medical establishment had really worked for a long time to try to combat addiction and make progress in this this kind of epidemic of, of addiction that had been happening. And then in 1996, Purdue Pharma introduced a drug called OxyContin, which is the star player in today's show. And it was an extended release formulation of an opioid pain medication, OxyCodone. They had a new product, but if you really look at the science, it had no real measurable difference than any other drug on the market during this time, which is super important to note because they knew that and they changed the perception through marketing. And that's kind of like where we begin our story today. Right. So we have done a lot of work with clinical trials. And with clinical trials, the way that they work is you have to establish that there is some sort of significant reason for why you should move a drug candidate forward. Yeah. And so there has to be a difference and it can be either it's longer lasting or it's more effective, it's more safe, 
whatever the case might be, there has to be a reason for bringing that drug forward and, and getting it approved. And so with Purdue, the FDA's medical review officer in evaluating the efficacy of OxyContin in Purdue's 1995 NDA application, their new drug application, concluded that OxyContin had not been shown to have a significant advantage over conventional immediate release oxycodone, which was taken four times daily, other than simply a reduction in frequency of dosing. So that in and of itself could be a reason. Convenience, it's a more long-lasting formulation. There's some legitimacy to that very specific component, but that was literally the only advantage was that it could just be taken less frequently. And I think what we'll see through a lot of this story is that a lot of things that are very atypical within the pharmaceutical review and approval process happened that allowed a lot of this stuff to just kind of take off and flourish. So in an effort to overcome the marketing challenges of a product with no real sufficient differentiation, they decided to go another route. They decided to create a new market entirely by aggressively working to normalize the use of opioids on management of chronic pain. So Purdue just decided to undo decades of work making the public safer from addictive opioids. Exactly. So they crafted this campaign that claimed that there was a national epidemic of untreated pain in America. Oh, man, that's horrible. Yeah. But they should have said, it's like, we're here to help you manage your pain safely. But rather they said, you're in pain. You shouldn't be suffering. You're not a bad person. You're not a junkie. Don't feel bad for using this medicine. You know, we're here to help you. It's safe. It is just so bad. This is horrible. Yeah. It really just takes this very twisted form and becomes a pattern that just snowballs over time. So Purdue representatives in promotional videos and taped interviews talk about building a pain movement. One of their paid spokesmen said that the medical industry simply needed to do a better job of, quote, prescribing strong pain medication. And I mean opioids. Yeah. We've created movements and community groups for patients and patient populations as it relates to diabetes or as it relates to cancer patients. And very often those communities are sponsored by a pharma company, but it is providing information regarding the disease state for the patients and it's unbranded content. Do you know what I mean? Like versus providing this solution to a problem that they don't really have. Right. And one of the things that ethical companies will do is they'll utilize independent review boards, independent medical legal review boards that will go through and they'll analyze all of the claims, make sure that everything is based on sound science, that there's a third party that's engaged. Purdue did not do that. Mm. What they did was they actually did what's called an AstroTurf campaign instead of a grassroots campaign. (laughs) So it was fake grassroots that created these unbranded websites that were supposedly independent information from independent groups. And all of that content was not from independent groups. The contributors were, in some cases, fake contributors. And the information was completely misleading and false about things like how addictive the medication was, what your chance of addiction might be, and the overall effectiveness of the drug for specific indications like 
osteoarthritis and other disease states that they hadn't actually done any clinical trials mm. that were sufficient in any way, shape, or form to demonstrate that it was effective for those specific disease states. So that kind of like leads me to a question yeah. <laughs> as we're just starting to open up this topic is, isn't that a little bit like how a drug dealer would behave? Yeah, I think about it, right? Yeah, they give a free sample to get you hooked. Then they start charging you once you're addicted to it. And Purdue did exactly this, but at scale, and they did it super aggressively as well. It's terrible. So they made physicians comfortable with prescribing opioids to a wealth of conditions, to your point, for which they had previously not been used and arguably shouldn't be used for at all. They actually produced sales aids. And this is kind of like when I started researching this, I started feeling very close to home because we produce a lot of sales aids. It will produce <laughs> yeah. sales aids for salespeople to explain the benefits to physicians or to registered nurses. Or I mean, this is a tactic that I'm very well aware of. But what they did was they created the sales aids that underemphasize the addiction potential of these opioids saying that it's less than 1% of people that actually use it becomes addictive. And the science says it's like 10, 20-fold that. So let's actually stop here and let's play a very quick ad that was a marketing material that they played to physicians in the doctor's offices. There's no question that our best, strongest pain medicines are the opioids, but these are the same drugs that have a reputation for causing addiction and other terrible things. Now. In fact, the rate of addiction amongst pain patients who are treated by doctors is much less than 1%. Yeah, so that's a video of Dr. Alan Spanos, which they used as a spokesperson speaking to other physicians about the actual drug. Mm. It again just makes me think of how this played out because we submit stuff on behalf of our clients for FDA reviews on a regular basis and the amount of effort and the amount of time that goes into creating that packet to make it scientifically correct and the client changing the smallest color or the smallest copy tweak not to make the drug or anything untruthful is such a laborious process that we do on a, on a regular basis. Right. I just cannot understand how they got this through the FDA. It is just, it's mind-blowing to me. And I know we'll talk a little bit more about that in a second, but to represent something at a 1% that's actually 10, 20%, it's just evil. And that's the subversive part of all of this is the fact that at this time when they produced this commercial, they knew there were all these internal studies that have been done showing that the addiction rate was significantly higher. Yeah. They were relying on this letter that they had received that it wasn't even an actual peer-reviewed study that was done. It was just a letter from a doctor who had just gone and done a review of old casework on totally different types of patients. And they kind of utilized that information to create this false narrative about the actual risks, completely knowing what they were doing. And also just to say that physicians are really busy and they get peppered with sales aids and marketing videos and people coming to their offices and giving them free samples and stuff. And they don't question the substance of the material that they get, because usually before it gets to them, it's gone through a very rigorous approval process, specifically about the drug. 
right? So if they make a claim and they say only 1% of people using this will get addictive to it, they're not going to question that. And that's why this is so pure evil, because it's an actual physician telling them that you can use this safely and your your patient's not going to get hooked on it. Right. And this is kind of all going on at a time when there was this big change within the pharmaceutical rep approach that pharma companies were taking. They used to have these really well-educated, from a scientific perspective, sales reps that were more kind of like scientists than they were actual salespeople going in and they knew the drug inside and out. They knew the pharmacology inside and out. And they could have these really advanced conversations with doctors. And then you saw this shift towards just massive sales reps Mm -hmm. where the quality of the conversation level kind of went down because they're trying to just get these sales reps out at scale into the offices and bombard the doctors with information. And so you did see that trend happen. And then now post this story and all of the things that have kind of taken place in the early 2000s. So now there's a lot more scrutiny that doctors are having with the materials that they're interacting with Mm -hmm. because they want to make sure that what they're doing really makes sense and is correct. So the other thing about this is that the way that they promoted it is that they did it through almost this kind of like veiled classism and they said that only those type of people use bad drugs. They created this group of others. Also racism. I mean, they didn't go out and and say just white people, just black people. But if you look at all their market material, it was classism and racism. They spoke about those drug people, those people. Yeah, they would say, you know, you're not like them. You won't get hooked. You're not some kind of junkie. They really set it up that if you got addicted, it was because you were a person of bad character who was intentionally trying to abuse the medication and that it wouldn't happen to a responsible person. Yeah. So let's listen to a clip from a 1998 Purdue Pharma marketing commercial that was directed to patients. Once you've found the right doctor and have told him or her about your pain, don't be afraid to take what they give you. Often, it will be an opioid medication. Some patients may be afraid of taking opioids because they're perceived as too strong or addictive. But that is far from actual fact. Less than 1% of patients taking opioids actually become addicted. And any drowsiness that might occur when you start to take the medication will soon wear off in most patients. Oh man, that's just horrible. Yeah. So one of the core principles in modern pharmaceutical advertising is that you have to provide fair and balanced information in any ad. There were changes that were made to how you did, for example, search engine marketing ads where you had to either include the ISI, which is the little booklet you take out of your box of tablets. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. The fine print. Yes, it's called the important safety information. I remember when that came in effect, we had to change all our ads for all our clients. Yeah. It was a really big deal because Google just wanted to make sure that the information that we give patients are factual and correct. Right. So we would have this approval process that we would have to go through. We would have to manually work with a special dedicated healthcare rep at Google to go over the ISI with them, make sure that everything was properly included, that there was fair and balanced safety information, and they would manually review the ads Mm -hmm. to make sure that they were compliant. And then those ads would be whitelisted and we could 
run the ad. And later there were additional changes to search marketing ads because of the character limits and stuff that, you know, you had to drive them to a page that immediately showed the important safety information. But the point is, is that this was not happening in these TV commercials. It wasn't happening in any of the ads. There was not fair and balanced information and any information that was provided around risks completely minimized and obfuscated the risks. Yeah, and they were laying the groundwork here. The first video we listened to was to physicians, now it's to patients, right? So they're like planting the seeds within the community that opioids are okay, they're not addictive. You, if you're in pain, it's okay for you to use them. They're laying the groundwork here. That's why when we started here, I said it's the most cynical, sinister campaign in in history of marketing because so many people died, right? I think it's like over 200,000 people have died in the U.S. due to the crisis that this created. Yeah, there was actually an internal memo after some really bad safety data came out where 59 people had been directly tied to overdose deaths due to OxyContin. And the CEO, Richard Sackler, at the time, in the memo, he basically said, well, it could have been a lot worse, so that's great news. Yeah. I mean, it's just terrible. Yeah. So in 2001 alone, the company spent $200 million in an array of approaches to promote OxyContin. So this was a big campaign back then. Sales grew from $48 million in 96 to $1.1 billion in 2000. The high availability of the drug correlated with increased abuse, diversion, and addiction. And in 2004, OxyContin had become the leading drug of abuse in the United States. So sad. It's crazy. And the fact that while all of this is going on, people know what they're doing. There was actually internal emails from sales reps. Oh, the six-figure commission email? Yeah, yeah. It's like all these dollar signs. In the subject line. And then it says, in quote, it's bonus time in the neighborhood because these sales reps were making six-figure commissions on selling this, knowing that there were a number of clinics who were literally just handing this stuff out and they were just becoming pill mills. Giving out free samples, yeah. Yeah, and the sales reps were just loving it. Which is very different from, I think, some of the previous episodes that we've covered in that whenever things started to go kind of sideways, like, for example, in the Theranos episode, there were people at Theranos that stood up and said, hey, this isn't acceptable. This is not ethical. It was like a revolution that happened from within. Right. But the problem is here, the doctors were making money and the patients were getting hooked. So (laughs) they were like, (laughs) like, they couldn't, they couldn't be a revolution. It's horrible. Yep. So... They were able to do that, to your point, by getting the medical establishment to play along in this. So they recruited and trained doctors, nurses, and pharmacists to be their spokespeople. So between 1996 and 2001, Purdue Pharma conducted more than 40 national pain management and speaker training conferences at resorts in Florida, Arizona, California, etc. And more than 5,000 physicians, pharmacists, and nurses attended these all-expenses-paid symposia where they were recruited and trained for Purdue's National Speaker Bureau. Wow. And it's a well-documented fact that before the Sunshine Act, which I think was in 2010, these type of get-togethers really influenced physicians. 
So just for our listeners that aren't aware of what the Sunshine Act is, it's something that President Obama put in place where you can go today to, I think it's sunshineact.org, and you can type in a physician's name, and you can see all the money they've received, either for research or for speaking engagements or for absolutely anything. So up until this point, that didn't exist. And it's very well documented that a lot of physicians were highly influenced because they got flown first class to Florida to a golf resort to listen to a peer speaking about a specific drug that was paid by the pharmaceutical company to deliver their address. It was a horrible practice that the Sunshine Act kind of like curtailed a little bit. Yeah, exactly. So they kind of created these lists of KOLs or key opinion leaders and paid them to go around and reassure physicians that addiction rates were low and that they were underused for chronic pain. And we work with KOLs on a regular basis to promote disease states for some of our clients. And 99% of the time, these are deans of a hospital and they never receive any money. In fact, they don't even get paid to fly to a conference to deliver a speech regarding a disease state. So how times have changed. So they funded pain advocacy groups that appeared to be independent, but were in part of their strategy. In 1996, the American Academy of Pain Medicine and the American Pain Society got tens of thousands of dollars from Purdue and Johnson & Johnson. And you might know that in the depositions that went on, both Purdue and Johnson were mentioned, but I think Johnson & Johnson actually settled before it got really ugly leading some people to say that the societies became totally dependent on pharma funding to continue putting out their programs, which defeats the entire institution of the society. If you think about it, they use sophisticated marketing data to influence physicians of how they prescribe the drug. Yeah, so one of the critical foundations of Purdue's marketing plan for OxyContin was to target the physicians who were the highest prescribers for other types of opioids across the country, more mild opioids, mm -hmm. because they would be easier to convince because they were already prescribing. So the resulting database would then help identify those physicians with large numbers of chronic pain patients. But unfortunately, the same database would also identify which physicians were simply the most frequent prescribers of opioids, and in some cases, the least discriminate mm. prescribers. So they knew who they could get massive volume through if they could identify some of these prescribers who were essentially pill mills, then they could really push those guys to really take it even further. So they just put more sales reps on the street. Between 1996 to 2000, Purdue's internal sales force grew from 318 sales reps to 671. Sure, it's a huge jump. And its total physician call list grew from about 40,000 in 1996 to nearly 100,000 physicians in 2000. And they just gave it away for free. Yeah, they literally did programs for OxyContin to provide patients with free limited one-time prescriptions for seven to 30-day supply. And in 2001, when the program eventually ended, approximately 34,000 coupons had been distributed nationally. And here's another quick audio that I want to play. It's with a CBS interview of a sales rep from Purdue. Panera claims the company taught a sales tactic she now considers questionable, saying some patients might only appear to be addicted, when in fact, they're just in pain. In training, she was taught a term for this, pseudo-addiction. So the cure for pseudo-addiction 
you were trained is more opioids. A higher dose, yes. Did this concept of pseudo addiction come with studies backing it up? We had no studies. We actually, we, we did not have any studies. That's the thing that was kind of disturbing was that we didn't have studies to present to the doctors. Man, pseudo addiction. Unbelievable. Yeah. In the 2000s, OxyContin abuse rapidly grew. Purdue Pharma sponsored proactive abuse avoidance programs, and they called one of them RADARS, which stands for Researched Abuse Diversion and Addictive Related Surveillance. And their own data, their actual own data in this study for OxyContin and hydrocodone actually showed that it was the most abused pain medication in the US. So their own study, but they did nothing about it. In 2012, in the New England Journal of Medicine, published a study stating that 76% of those seeking help from heroin addiction started with abuse of prescription narcotics. So I listened to a lot of stories preparing for today's episode, and that's exactly what happens. Somebody gets into a car accident, they hurt their foot, they get OxyContin. And they use it for three months while they recover. And then they can't, A, get hold of it, or B, it's really expensive to buy on the black market, so to speak. And then heroin is a fifth of the price, but it does exactly the same thing. So it's like an entry point for people to get hooked on heroin. And I think a lot of people don't realize that. They don't realize that this is a super addictive medication that people get hooked on. And the entry point is from their physician, and it's solving a problem that they have due to a motor car accident, a motorcycle accident, or whatever it is. And fast forward six months to a year later, they hooked on heroin. And that's kind of like what started the whole opioid drama that we have currently in the US. It's super sad if you think about it. These aren't those people that they were talking about. This is you and me and people we know. Exactly. It's people who, for a very legitimate reason, have a very legitimate problem. And it's not people who are partiers that are going out. That's kind of the way that they framed up all of these addicts is that, oh, it's it's people who their lives are a mess. They're trying to fix it with partying and with drugs. And this is who these people are. When it was the opposite, it was mostly soccer moms and good, hardworking people who got into this cycle of abuse because of how Purdue aggressively pushed and marketed the drug and just completely exacerbated OxyContin's widespread abuse. That study that you mentioned in 2012 also mentioned that most of those people who started on heroin started from OxyContin. So here's an example of how much Purdue Pharma really manipulated the system in order to create these drug addicts. So OxyContin's 12-hour schedule just doesn't adequately relieve pain. What happened is, is that OxyContin was originally approved to be an extended release. You were, normally, you would take the same opioids four times a day. And with OxyContin, it was supposed to allow you to sleep through the night with 12 hours of coverage so that you could get a good night's rest but the effects were actually only present for eight hours. And so once they discovered this, they had the choice to either increase the frequency 
So basically now you just say, okay, you're supposed to take it every eight hours instead of every 12. And then you have smooth, continuous coverage Mm -hmm. for your pain relief. Or they could try to increase the dose to get a stronger response. But then there's, of course, no guarantee that it's going to last the full 12 hours. You're just going to get a stronger response during a similar duration. And it might trail off a little bit longer, but for the most part, that shouldn't necessarily change the duration. But that's the entry point to addiction right there, which you just outlined. (laughs) That's exactly right, because they purposefully chose to increase the dose instead of the frequency Mm -hmm. and forced the sales reps to insist that doctors should only increase the dose and not the frequency. So this created a four-hour gap coupled with higher doses Mm. that created micro withdrawal episodes. So if you think of coming off of heroin, you're creating a four hour withdrawal episode on a daily basis that significantly increases cravings, the potential for addiction. So now you're taking something where if used properly, there's somewhere between maybe a 13%, 20% chance of addiction, depending on what studies you look at. And now you're significantly increasing that probability. It's horrible. But how did people react? I mean, during this time, did people see what was going on? Yeah, yeah, exactly. They did. And of course, the epidemic was just exploding. And you're seeing all these stories on the news about the difficulty that first responders were having dealing with this, all of these family members being lost to addiction. And so the result was, you know, just years of negative press coverage, Increased scrutiny from regulators, which I think is still completely a joke of how this all happened. Yeah, and million-dollar fines. I think they were fined $600 million at one point and several major lawsuits. And in every single deposition, not once is the Sackler name, which is the owners of Purdue, mentioned anywhere in any, any legal documents of any of the lawsuits. And to me, that's one of the biggest problems with this entire thing is that everybody was able to kind of get off scot-free and that there was so little regulatory involvement in this. I pulled the numbers and between 2008 and 2015, during that seven-year period, there were 214 warning letters issued by OPDP. Guess how many of them were to Purdue Pharma? Zero. Zero. Remember we read, uh, what was the number? Correct me if I'm wrong. There were $900 million worth of political contributions made by Purdue Pharma, correct? Yeah, yeah. No wonder there were no warning letters. And that's what drug lords do. They pay the police not to raid their meth lab. Is exactly what they did, just at a much larger scale. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So they did receive three warning letters over the course of this entire thing, but they were all in the early 2000s and they were absolutely hit and miss just for a random journal ad. They are nothing to do with the drug or the efficacy. Yeah, so they would let all of these other misleading claims, claims that had absolutely no scientific backup for the claims, no peer review, all of this misleading information in in a variety of sources and marketing channels, they let it stand. And with warning letters, the FDA has the ability to also issue cease and desist. They can completely shut down your operations. And we've seen that happen for way, way, way smaller infractions 
than anything Purdue ever did. Yeah, I mean, we've had ads that got stuck to the FDA because we were using a hummingbird or something similar where they felt that it's describing the benefit of the drug more than what it really is. Or, I mean, it's like the, the most mundane or it was too vibrant of colors, or, I mean, these are the things that <laughs> right. we deal with. It could give a false impression of the sensitivity. <laughs> and now the question is, did Purdue pull back during this time? It's starting to come into a head year, and they didn't. They literally just doubled down. Yeah, they absolutely continued to as aggressively as possible with every change that happened and every obstacle that they encountered continue to market the need for better pain management of this epidemic of untreated pain. They set themselves up as this end-to-end pain provider. They actually branched out into opioid addiction and overdose medicines. And this is actually one of the worst parts that once they started to expand into recovery and addiction management drugs, then things got so much worse. Yeah, in 2008, the society that they basically drive, both of them, the American Pain Society and the American Academy of Pain Medicine, formed a board and drafted new guidelines for opioids prescription. To put in perspective for you, of the 21 members, 14 received payments from Purdue and other narcotic manufacturers. It opened up an ability for prescribing opioids for a host of things that were previously unheard of to use in a disease state for a specific circumstance. And to your point, behind the scene, Purdue very cunningly had their own research that predicted the sales of this drug, which is called naloxone, which is basically used to reverse an overdose because they've created that four-hour window that you were talking about where people go into withdrawals. They then take more of the drug and they go into an overdose. So they were getting ready to launch this drug to basically reverse a problem that they've created, which then goes to become a major blockbuster of one of their drug portfolios later on. So they would treat the pain, the treatment would create the addiction, and that would drive the sales of the addiction and then the overdose treatment medicine. And they get away with it, right? Through positioning both these drugs with the physicians and the patients. It's just like escalating and, and snowballing at this point. They even targeted their own existing OxyContin users. They mined their own database. Potential people that might be in the market for the overdose drug and they knew that people would react to this very negatively, so they actually named it. They called it Project Tango. So not only are they using secret codes to communicate with each other, which actually there's multiple stories of them utilizing secret codes in emails that they would have sales reps call back into the office utilizing secret codes so that they could communicate with each other. But, I mean, what is this? Project Tango? Mm. So is that like because it takes two to tango, like they're supplying both the disease and the cure. I mean, like that's so intentional. That's exactly what it is. It just blows my mind. So (laughs) according to court filings, Project Tango was a secret plan to profit off of opioid addiction caused by their drugs that included aggressive marketing to get doctors to keep more people on higher doses of opioids for longer periods of time. 
Publicly, Purdue told doctors that opioid addiction was the fault of addicts and their drugs would not cause addiction if taken by a trustworthy person and used correctly. Court documents even say that Purdue Pharma knew opioids would cause addiction and they wanted to sell drugs to treat addiction. They noted the large increase in opioid addiction over the previous five years and said, it can happen to anyone. The CEO of Purdue Pharma said the market for addiction treatment was attractive due to, quote, a large unmet need for vulnerable, underserved, and stigmatized patient populations suffering from substance abuse, dependence, and addiction, which, you know, he actually created. Yeah, and the court findings also revealed that Purdue aggressively pursued relationships with universities, universities like Taft, University Health Sciences Campus, and Massachusetts General Hospital two of the state's premier academic medical centers in order to expand prescriptions by physicians and to generate goodwill towards opioid painkillers among medical students and doctors in training. So they're getting them before they've even graduated Mm. and combat negative reports about this addiction that was the whole country was going through. This just seems like pure evil, you know, and, and sadly it is just that. Yeah, and like anything that is that terrible, eventually it had to come to an end. So as early as 2004, Purdue was sued by the state of West Virginia, first for excessive prescription costs as a result of overprescribing OxyContin, and then for deceptive marketing practices. Purdue settles out of court for a tiny sum of $10 million, and all of the evidence as a part of that settlement deal was sealed. In 2007, the company pled guilty to lying about OxyContin's risk of addiction and agreed to pay $600 million. And not only the company, but Purdue's president, chief medical officer, and the head of their legal team pled guilty to individual felony criminal charges and paid over $34 million in fines and did community service in drug treatment programs. In 2007, the state of Kentucky sues Purdue, demanding millions in compensation for the costs of addiction across the state. And that suit was eventually settled for $24 million. Nothing, right? This is a billion-dollar company, $24 million. Multi-billions. Multi-multi-billions. OxyContin. $35 billion total sales. $35 billion yeah. with a B yeah. through, I think, 2015, yeah. right? So that's not even including the last four or five years. So... Three to four billion a year in revenue just from OxyContin, let alone, you know, the rest of what Purdue is doing. And so in 2017, the city of Everett, Washington sues Purdue for not tracking suspicious ordering. So doctors were setting up these pill mill false clinics, right, where homeless people would act as patients to buy OxyContin, which was then sold on the street. Purdue was completely aware of this for years, never notified the DEA. And this lawsuit is actually still ongoing today. Yeah, they were just sued multiple times and they just kept on going. They didn't change any of their tactics. By 2019, January, 36 states were suing Purdue Pharma. So this is recent, right? This is like two years ago. Among other things, the attorney general of the state of Massachusetts said that the Sackler family, which is this very wealthy American family that owned Purdue Pharma, should be held personally responsible for basically their deceptive marketing tactics with this drug within the U.S. 
Yeah, because they were directly involved with all of this, right? Very much so. They were orchestrating and manipulating behind the scenes to make sure that all of these very aggressive tactics happened. You know, this, this stuff just doesn't happen by accident. It's not a couple of rogue sales reps. This was absolutely high pressure, top down, mountains of evidence of direct involvement from the Sackler family in pushing this scandal. Yeah, so in late 2019, Purdue Farm and the Sackler family were negotiating settlements to the value of like $12 billion. And I think they had to put in 4 or $5 billion of their own money of this time. And then finally, they filed for a Chapter 11 bankruptcy to halt all these individual states suing them. And, and this is still going on today. Here's another clip that I want to quickly play with Richard Sackler, which is the CEO of the company and the actual deposition as well where he's just basically blatantly denying any of this happened. Sitting here today, after all you've come to learn as witness, do you believe that Purdue's conduct in Kentucky has led to an excessive or unnecessary amount of opioids being located throughout the Commonwealth of Kentucky? I don't believe so. Do you believe that any of Purdue's conduct has led to an increase in people being addicted in the Commonwealth of Kentucky? No. So the company's still running right now, but the public will become the beneficiary of the trusts of any money that they make. And the Sackler family gave up ownership of the company completely. As I mentioned, the Sackler family would contribute some of their own personal money in the settlement, but then they would avoid any criminal charges for any of this through the settlement. In September 2019, after the file for bankruptcy, there's a lot of evidence showing that the family drains a lot of money from the actual company to offshore banking accounts, like billions and billions of dollars. Here's another quick clip that I want to play from PBS NewsHour, which is an interview with a New Yorker journalist. And the Sacklers have developed this reputation as great patrons of the arts and universities who never really have to talk about the family business, which is the source of all their wealth. What's fascinating about this filing in Massachusetts is that you have hundreds of pages of documentation from inside the company showing very, very active involvement from multiple members of the family who are members of the board, uh, but not members of the board who are, who are um, at some distance, mm -hmm. members of the board who are very, very actively directing Purdue Pharma in pushing OxyContin even after uh, this epic public health crisis that we're all experiencing now. Yeah, so through all the depositions and everything, the Sackler family is just denying any involvement with Purdue, but this is so much evidence showing that they withdrew money and that they were very much involved with the day-to-day -day operations of the company. And so you can say, hey, well, they had to put in $4.5 into the settlement fund. But the thing is, is they had withdrawn up to potentially $10 billion just in cash that they just pulled out of the company before the bankruptcy happened. And they had been making billions and billions before that. So even after the worst of all of this happens, none of them go to jail. They're still billionaires. It's horrible. It's just a slap on the wrist. Yeah, it's horrible. I still really struggle to grasp how this happened because I know the FDA very well. You and I work in the pharma industry every day. You know, if I sit back and I look at it all, I can see the marketing tactics was deceitful. I can see that they gave all this money for political contributions. 
I can see them denying all this and I can see that they've got a lot of money, but how does this happen? I don't understand how a single family or a single company can create such a massive problem and then just walk away from it. Right. Yeah. I mean, there's things that even today still are very broken in the system. Yes, there's been a lot of things that have happened, like the Sunshine Act and FDA has really tightened the screws on a lot of the different review processes they go through and that kind of stuff. But this is still the outcome that is happening. But the way that this came to be was in part because they had people on the inside so to your point earlier, you know, you talked about how they were kind of, in a sense, were able to, like the mafia, pay people off, you know, these 900 million in political contributions that they made. One of the FDA reviewers was a man named Dr. Curtis Wright, who a few years later became Purdue's executive director in risk assessment. And so this is back in 1993, OxyContin was trying to pursue osteoarthritis patients because, you know, with osteoarthritis, you have chronic pain. So they're trying to increase the patient population. Right. They're trying to expand the indication of what the drug can be used mm. for, who it can be prescribed to. So they have this doctor, Dr. Curtis Wright, who is at the FDA, who alerts them through essentially a back channel that the FDA felt that OxyContin was not appropriate for patients suffering from osteoarthritis. So Dr. Wright tells Purdue that the FDA would not even approve a clinical protocol designed to test the effectiveness of opioids in osteoarthritis treatment, and that they could get around those objections by rewriting the study to state that osteoarthritis patients were being used just as pain models, but not as actual subjects for the effectiveness of the drug, not as a target patient population. And that once the study was complete, Purdue could then essentially circumvent the FDA's initial negative position about the drug and use it to market to osteoarthritis. So they did all of these things that they were able to get inside help. They were able to take every change that the FDA pushed forward, the three warning letters that they did get, after each one of those, they were able to spin those into further advantage and expanding of their promotion for the drug. Yeah, and can you imagine if there were no FDA, how things would have gone off the rails then? Because you can ask yourself, how does this happen to a large company and how did they become this evil? And how can we prevent it from happening again? And the only answer that I can think of is that we need some sort of a government agency that regulates the marketing communication that we put out in front of patients or in front of consumers. And we have that in place. So I have to tell myself that this was just a perfect storm and a very highly calculated evil act to drive horrible medicines to people to get them hooked and to make lots of money. Working within the pharma industry every day working with the FDA, working with big pharma clients. I just think of some of our clients, they are so cautious of the communication we put out in front of patients and they're so hesitant. And we're usually the one that push them from a marketing perspective to speak the consumer language. And they always want to push back from a scientific perspective to right. stay as close as possible to the science of the actual drug. I've just got to remind myself that this had to have been 
a perfect storm versus a broken system. And one of the sad things about this is that there are legitimate uses for opioids. Think about a terminally ill cancer patient. Yeah. You've got stage four cancer. You have six weeks to live. There are very legitimate uses for opioids, but the absolute disregard for human life in this is really crazy. So at the beginning of the episode, you know, I said, I love to explore the gray area in things. This is not one of those gray area things. This is very black and white. This is absolutely wrong. So the numbers play that out. There have been over 200,000 deaths directly related to prescription opioids in the U.S. from this epidemic. And that's not even counting the people who then move on to harder drugs, heroin, fentanyl, and all of these street drugs, right? So the impact is significantly greater in the millions of people. So I think the one of the main lessons is to follow your gut. And in marketing, we always want to be as effective as possible. But there are very, very clear boundaries that we need to stay within from a marketing perspective. And marketing is a tool. It's just like anything else. It can be used for good and it can be used for bad. And as marketers, I think we have an ethical and a moral obligation to ensure that what we're doing is making the world a better place and is not damaging people and damaging their lives. And so I think this is such an instructive example of how people can take things that could actually be used for good, legitimate causes and twist them into something terrible through very cynical and targeted marketing practices. All right, that's a really good spot for us to wrap today's episode up. But before we do, why don't you read one or two reviews for us? Awesome. Uh, it feels so weird because it's like this, such a <laughs> heavy topic. Yeah, and we felt obliged to do this because in the review you asked for it. So if there's any other lighthearted marketing stories that you'd like us to unpack, <laughs> we'd be happy to do that. So please keep on mentioning them in the reviews of some suggestions for us. So let's actually wrap up with a review by at Raman. These guys know what they're talking about. Bring to light some hidden truths. I especially loved the most recent episode covering everything from Thomas Edison to Theranos. I love how they back up industry anecdotes with fact-based stories. Not going to lie, as a recovering startup exec, it all rang a little too close to home, but the truth hurts. I'll definitely be listening to more. Well, that's probably a pretty good one to read to go along with this episode. Thanks, at Raman, and we'll talk to you guys next week. We'll talk to you guys next week. You've been listening to the Marketing Rescue Podcast. This show is hosted by Nico Katsia and Chad Childress, the co-founders of KPI Agency, a marketing rescue agency. Be sure to visit marketingrescuepodcast.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, contact the hosts, and discover fantastic bonus content.